Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. All engine running. Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery is advances. Questions. Research. Technology. Unbelievable. Without further ado, this is The Naked Scientist. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist, the programme that brings you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine. I'm Chris Smith and this week The Naked Scientists have been to the City of Science, Trieste, to take part in their annual science festival and to speak to some of the researchers who are pushing back the frontiers of knowledge in this beautiful part of northeastern Italy. On the way, using artificial intelligence to unlock the workings of the universe, but can we trust what it tells us? Halfway up a hillside, I stumble on the boat Marconi used to develop the first telegraph a century ago in England and working from home, the oceanographer who drives a seagoing drone from her bedroom. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. The coastal city of Trieste is about an hour and a half north of Venice. It's a short drive from the Croatian and Slovenian borders and it overlooks the Adriatic Sea. It's dubbed the City of Science because the place is dominated by research institutes and facilities, including even a synchrotron particle accelerator. And where you've got a lot of scientists in one place, just like in Cambridge, inevitably you need a science festival. Eager to see the sights, James Titko hit the streets. Welcome to Trieste. You're joining me from the Piazza Unita d'Italia, Italy's largest town square here on the seafront of this historic seaport. It's Thursday evening, we've just arrived, and I'm taking a stroll past some pretty majestic Austro-Hungarian architecture. You might just be able to hear some of the people enjoying their evening, much like me, in the busy bars which spill out onto the cobbles. I mentioned that this is one pretty massive town square, but its vastness is somewhat compromised this weekend, thanks to an assortment of marquees, tents, all of which will be bustling with activity by tomorrow morning. This week, the Naked Scientists have been invited to be a part of Trieste Next, an annual festival dedicated to public engagement in science. We'll be attending and participating in some panels and discussions, and also get the chance to speak with some of the hard-working researchers here in one of Europe's most sciencey cities. But for now, I think I fancy one of those icy, fruity drinks everyone else seems to be enjoying. 
I'm Suzanne Kurbovcic, and I'm responsible for communications and outreach at the International Centre for Genetic Engineering and Biotechnology. So we're in Trieste, where each year we organise a science festival called Trieste Next, which is the Festival for Scientific Research. This is the 11th edition, and it brings together about 30 institutes that are all located within Trieste, working in different fields of science. So it's a fantastic opportunity for public engagement and citizen science. What a setting for it. I mean, I'm looking out now on the Trieste seafront. Beautiful. So tell me a bit more about Trieste Next. It's all about public engagement in science. How's that facilitated? So essentially all of the institutes uh, sponsor uh, this festival and their researchers on a voluntary basis call guest speakers from all over the world and organize events that are held free for the public. There's also an international academy, so students from all uh, European uh, universities uh, receive grants to travel to Trieste and attend events and meet with the researchers. So it's a uh, it's it's a lot of um, you know it's very exciting. It's a great opportunity and uh, and uh, really promotes what Trieste is all about. There's about one scientist for every 38 citizens wow. in Trieste, and yet there are a lot of people who don't know what the institutes do, and they're very curious and always uh, willing to to come to these events. Absolutely, uh, we might have picked up some of the clapping going on from in the conference hall right behind me. <laughs> How many locations across Trieste is, is this currently going on in? Okay, so across the way you can see Piazza Unita d'Italia. Uh, and in there we have the, the main stage where there are conferences. And in the surrounding area there are stands that represent every institute. On the way along the seafront from here we are in Molo Quarto, um, uh, which is a new conference area. All the way through to the piazza there are about uh, two other theatres, the historical Giuseppe Verde. Theatre. Is that the stunning one? It's uh, it feel it looks like an ancient place. That's the one. It's a, a very historic mm. theatre. So all the authorities put the city at the disposal, if you like, of science and for its citizens. So it's a, an exciting time. Wonderful. And Suzanne, to finish, is there any event in particular you're most looking forward to this weekend, or are they all equally as? as high on your priority list? No, seriously, the the biggest one for me is the event where we'll have Chris Smith speaking (laughs) because we have our Director General, Lawrence Banks, who's a a tumour virologist, our former Director General, Mauro Jaka, who's a cardiologist now at King's College, and yourselves here with us. And it's taken a long time to get you here, but we've just really excited about it. It's been sold out, well, you know, fully booked and looking forward to it as you have no idea. That was the ICGB's Suzanne Kabavcic welcoming James Titko to Trieste and the Trieste Next Festival. Explaining the origins and evolution of the universe has taxed the brightest brains the world has ever produced, like Cambridge's Stephen Hawking. But what we're rapidly realising, and Stephen Hawking himself alluded to over the course of his career in his writings, is that the human brain may just not be capable of comprehending the multidimensional relationships that drive the cosmos. So scientists are increasingly turning to computers and machine learning to look for the patterns that might steer us along the right path. Roberto Trotter is one of them. He's at the International School for Advanced Studies, CISA, and they occupy what was once a hospital high in the hills overlooking Trieste. So anyone who works there gets the brain-stimulating bonus of an incredible vista. You are, in theory, a cosmologist, 
but you probably should have a degree in real estate because if you got this office with a view like that, you should be selling apartments. Well, in fact, they sold this office to me. And in fact, I was a very happy buyer <laughs> every time I come in. For listeners at home, we're sitting in Roberto's office and I'm staring over a balcony at the most beautiful seascape bay dotted with boats. What are we, a few miles up the hills here from the sea? Yeah, we're just about um, 300 meters high up on the beginning of the Karst Plateau overlooking Trieste. And we can see, you know, from on, on one side, all the eastern peninsula. On the other side, on a good day, you can almost imagine to see Venice shimmering in the distance. Was this always an institute where big-brained physicists probe the origins of the universe, this building? Well, it actually used to be a hospital for a patient with tuberculosis. So they needed the air, the fresh air of the Karst Plateau, and they needed the terrace, which is a relic of that epoch. And so our offices enjoy the view and the fresh air on the terrace as well. You've devoted your career to trying to understand the evolution of the universe. Can you try to capture for us about 13.8 billion years, how it all fits together and where the interesting bits are? So the universe starts in a big bang, a big, hot, energetic state where the universe starts expanding at an accelerated rate. And then all of this disappears and light, matter, neutrinos, dark matter, all the stuff the universe is made of emerges. What would be the time on that? Probably something around 10 to the minus 32 seconds, something like that. Very, very short amount of time, a fraction of a fraction of a second. After that, it's another three minutes before all the atoms actually come into existence in a way that we would recognize today, mostly hydrogen and helium. And after that, it's 380,000 years of opaqueness. The universe is filled with a plasma, which means a very hot radiation and um, hydrogen bath that uh, is so dense that light itself cannot propagate. So it's a, literally a, a moment in the life of the universe where it's like looking through a fog. You can't see anything. But then the magic happens. The universe cools off sufficiently so that electrons get captured by protons. The universe becomes neutral. Now light can propagate. And a beautiful map of the early universe emerges. And that map we can pick up with our telescope so we can look all the way back to this moment in time, 380,000 years after the Big Bang. And that was when the first stars that we can see were shining? Not quite. At that moment in time, stars haven't had time to form yet. We need to wait another maybe 500 million years before the first stars and galaxies begin to form. And then gravity starts doing its job, galaxies form and so on and so forth. And things continue pretty smoothly for about six billion years until something else happens. How do you know it's that time point? How do you know that, that things were pretty business as usual until six billion years? The most important marker of that point in time is the fact that we can look back at the expansion history of the universe. And we see the universe expanding but decelerating, slowing down as it expands. This is what we expect from gravity, because gravity tends to bring things together. But six billion years ago, something strange happens, and the expansion of the universe starts picking up speed again, powered by something mysterious that we're trying to find out. And that's dark energy that's pushing things apart. Dark energy, we don't know exactly what it is, but it's one of the biggest mysteries in physics today. We know, or we think we know, that 70% of the universe is made of dark energy yet we don't know what it is. Do we have a clue as to why it took six billion years before dark energy begins to dominate and starts making things grow faster? Was there just a sort of balancing act going on with gravity, the matter we 
could identify and some dark energy, but then it reaches a sort of tipping point where there's enough there to enter almost like a positive feedback loop where the faster it goes, the faster it grows. That's right. The fundamental property of dark energy, if it is indeed the property of empty space itself, is that as the universe expands, we create more empty space and therefore more dark energy. By contrast, matter of any kind, whether normal matter or dark matter, as the universe expands, gets diluted. There is the same amount of matter, but more volume, more space. Therefore, the relative importance goes down. So there is a tipping point, like you rightly said, where dark energy takes over because there's more space, there's more dark energy. But the deeper question is, why at that point? Why not at an earlier time or a later time in the history of the universe? That's the deeper question, which we really don't know how to answer yet. Are we not in a position, though, where we're into a realm of science now, where what we're trying to consider, the amount of information we're trying to relate, is so vast that it is beyond the comprehension even of big brain cosmologists? Cosmology has been undergoing a revolution. In the 60s, cosmology was not considered a real science because it was a playground for theorists because there was hardly any observation constraining any crazy idea. Nowadays, we are almost at the opposite end. We have so many observations, so many data. Understanding is the bottleneck now. And how to go from data to understanding and from understanding to theoretical models and therefore deeper insights into the nature of reality and the nature of the universe, that is what we are really banging our head against. The usual tools or the sort of classical tools that we've been using of data analysis and statistics, they are not up to the task. And so we are now turning towards artificial intelligence and machine learning and modern tools that will be able, hopefully, to extract meaning, extract patterns, extract structure from a large amount of data that no astronomer or no cosmologist, no human being can ever hope to be able to analyze, let alone look at. So it's really a question of having, having the machines understand what's relevant for us and sort of summarize it in a way that we can then interpret in a physically, hopefully, meaningful way. Everyone I talk to about AI and machine learning says to me, this is great, it can spot patterns between one piece of information and another, but when you ask it, how did you win that game of Go, the machine can't tell you. It's not explainable. So is this not a difficulty? Because you'll get answers out but you won't necessarily get the why. Very much so. And that's one that we as physicists really uh, are struggling with. You know, for us, we want really to understand, you know, what those structures, what those patterns mean and how the algorithms actually come to the conclusions that they come to. We've been really, really successful as a community, I think, in coming up with new ways of doing machine learning and AI that are slightly different from, you know, the Googles of this world who have slightly different problems than us. They want to spot patterns in a mass of data for which there is no theory. You know, we don't know why and how human beings behave. We just want to see what those patterns are. In our case, when we see galaxies distributions in the sky or whatnot, uh, we have theoretical understanding up to a point where those patterns come from. And we can give some of this knowledge to the machine so that uh, the machine can add on top things that we don't know about. So it's really a question of finding a sweet spot where we provide the machine with our human understanding and hopefully the machine can provide something else that we are missing at the moment. And so it's really finding that new equilibrium between machine and human intelligence that might solve the problems. If machine learning will discover uh, a new property of dark energy or new patterns that we cannot explain where they come from, will we be able to trust it? Will we be able to say this is the, the true theory of the universe if no human can ever explain where it comes from? That's very unsatisfactory. So we're working on making it more explainable, more understandable. Roberto Trotter.
You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith. Still to come, new insights into motor neuron disease, and I bump into Marconi's boat, Electra. Well, also at the International School for Advanced Studies is Nicoletta Krakmalnikov. Now, she's part of a team who are trying to see further back in time than we've ever managed previously. This is into that opaque period that Roberto Trotter mentioned in the very young universe. She's planning to do it by looking at tiny fluctuations in an entity called the Cosmic Microwave Background Radiation, or CMBR. This is also referred to as the afterglow of the Big Bang. It's radiation produced as the universe was first unfurling. And imprinted into that radiation is the footprint of the structure of the universe as things were at that time. The key is how to read it. So the cosmic microwave background radiation, CMB, is the first light emitted by our universe, 380,000 years after the Big Bang. So it's the first radiation that we can see. So wherever you look in the universe, you would be able to observe this radiation. And this radiation can tell us a lot of things about how our universe was created and how it evolved. And how does looking at light tell you anything about its history? So the point here is that this radiation has tiny fluctuation in the signal. So I told you that you can observe it in whatever direction you look, but it has tiny uh, fluctuations in the signal. The temperature of this radiation is slightly different in every direction of the universe. And these differences are due to fluctuations present in the primordial universe. So like hotter points in the universe are where we had under densities in the primordial universe, while colder spots are where there were over densities in the universe. So by studying these little fluctuations, we can learn something about the distribution of the matter in the primordial universe and then understand how this tiny fluctuation that were present in uh, the primordial universe evolved into the structures that we can observe today. You're working on a new experiment that's going to go live in about a year's time. What's that going to do and what will it add that we haven't already learned? CMB radiation has been observed, uh, it's like 50 years that we are able to observe the CMB. So we have studied a lot and we have learned a lot of things, but now we are trying to observe the polarization of the CMB. Part of the CMB has a preferential direction and we can observe this polarization and thanks to this polarization, we can understand things about what happened in the very early phase of the evolution of our universe. And with very early phase, I mean fraction of seconds after the Big Bang, what we call inflation. So inflation is a theory that the universe in the very first instant after the Big Bang went through an exponential expansion that allowed the universe to go from microscopic scales to microscopic scales. And this theory was introduced to explain some of the observations that we have in our universe, which were not explained by the standard Big Bang theory. Because we talk about the, the very early universe as being this sort of dark period, it's opaque, we can't see there, because light, as we see it, could not escape. Therefore, it's, it's literally a black box. We don't have an insight into that. But your fluctuations, polarizations in the microwave radiation give us potentially a window into that world if they're there and you can read them. 
Yeah, exactly. It's not like a direct window, so we cannot observe directly this dark phase of the universe, but we can observe the imprint of this phase into the cosmomicrobial background. So if we are able to detect this very tiny signal, then we can say something about inflation. What's the experiment you're doing? Where are you doing it? How will it work? It's going to be a network of telescopes located in Chile in the Atacama Desert. So it's a ground-based experiment. Four telescopes with two different kinds of telescopes. One observing, uh, one smaller, like a meter diameter. And the other type of, uh, of telescope will be much bigger, like six meter diameter. And thanks to this complementary of these two experiments, we hope we will be able to observe for the first time this particular polarized signal of the CMB and to prove that inflation really happened. And when will it go live? When will the first light flow into this telescope? In the current schedule, it will be in about one year. Then we will have a phase of few months where we like do commissioning. So we will try to understand whether our instruments are working well. And then we start to do scientific observations. And we will collect a lot of data. And then we will start to analyze these data. So few res- the, the first results will come probably in three years from now, something like that. Very exciting to be sitting on what's going to give us one of potentially our earliest looks at our universe. Yeah, that's super exciting. I must say that I'm lucky to have joined this collaboration uh, since the beginning and to be able to really now see the telescope going going live. Nicoletta Krakmalnikov trying to see further back to the beginning of time. But on a more moment-to-moment timescale, How do we actually have a notion of time at all? What makes the brain tick? And why does everything that's exciting seem to take no time at all, but boring things seem to drag along? Never happens on this programme, of course. And why does time seem to go into slow motion when something frightening happens? That's what CISA scientist Dominika Buetti works on. Her work suggests that the brain uses how much information we've stored about an event to decide how long something must have taken to happen. Your perception of time depends on the amount of input, of sensory input that your senses get. So the brighter, for example, a visual image is, the longer you perceive. Or the faster something moves, the longer is your perception of time. So if I was suddenly galvanised into paying attention to something, I would be storing huge amounts of information. My brain would say, well, there's lots of information corresponding to that event, therefore it must have happened over a long period of time. But equally, we know it didn't, so therefore I'm going to assume time slowed down. Yeah, I mean, this, this, is, this is it. So it's just that your brain interprets this amount of information as if there are multiple events happening in that time lapse, basically. And this is what we hypothesize based on, on these experiments that we run. Tell us about those. Okay, for example, in this case, we ask these healthy individuals to put their hands in a water tank. And the water tank could be filled of ice or of water at room temperature. And we measure, actually, their perceptual capacity, so how good they were in uh, uh, perceiving a simple visual image. And also, we ask them to judge for how long this visual image was presented on screen. And what we saw is that their visual acuity was higher, so it was much better, so they really were better under the stress. So when the, the hand was in ice compared to when the, the hand was in 
warm water. And this was interpreted as, okay, the fact that your visual system incorporates more information and this corresponds to your expansion of time because, of course, the judgment was that the visual image was displayed for longer than it physically was. It's really interesting that it transfers across senses then. So you put in a sensory stimulus, but it affects your perception of a visual one. Yeah, indeed, what we hypothesized was to change the physiological state of the subject. Indeed, we measure some physiological indices like uh, cortisol uh, reactivity or some neuroadrenaline also was... was so these are sort of stress signals in exactly. the nervous system. We were stressing those people, right? So your physiological, your general, we call it arousal. So your, your physiological state was aroused compared to, to uh, having your hands in warm water and this has caused this better visual perception and uh, time expansion. How does my brain know what happened last year versus the year before that? How is time coded for memories? How do we attach a timeline or a calendar to memory? Because it's one thing for me to, to have a concept of how long something took but to then store when it occurred relative to everything else that's happened in my life which we all do really well how on earth do we do that? This is, has to do with the capacity of putting things in sequence, right? And again, has been uh, associated with uh, the neural circuitry that deals with your memory capacity. So this hippocampus uh, structure that is in, in the temporal lobes. And uh, it looks like that really it depends on the memory. On, and this memory is not just the memory of the past. It's your capacity of putting yourself into this timeline and uh, imagine yourself in the future, for example. This is something that scientists are, there is a debate whether this is something that exclusively is a capacity that belongs to humans or also other animals have. Do we know in the brain where that sort of metronome is? Do we know how the brain generates a clock sequence or a clock signature that gives us our concept of time? We don't know, actually. This is the easy and quick answer. We don't know yet if there is a single clock or multiple clocks. Actually, now, based on our experiments, we seem more inclined to believe that there is no single clock, no single metronome in the brain. But actually, there are multiple brain areas, multiple circuits that enables you to keep track of time. And most of those circuits, uh, this is interesting point, is that are circuits that deal with movement for you. I was just going to say, because I, I can see you're tapping your foot, yeah. so am I, as yeah. you're talking. And, and you know, that, that motor movement can happen just like a pendulum on a clock, can't it? So it, it's our brain generating a movement, even an imaginary one, to then superimpose a sensation of time. Yeah, I think this has to do with the, how do we learn about time, right? You can sense it, but you cannot touch it, right? You cannot see it or smell it. But time is everywhere, and the way you learn time is through change. And the, the most prominent way we experience change is through motion. Our own movement, body movements, or the, the movement we see actually. And indeed, the neural circuits that are related to this capacity of keeping track of time are areas that are deal with motion, with visual motion, like this uh, uh, extrasocial area V5, we call MT, or the, the, the areas that are responsible for our own movement, body movements, like the premotor areas or motor cortex. Dominica Buetti on why time flies when you're having fun. Did you notice how that interview seemed to go by in a flash?
The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire. Cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for audio and video productions. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith. And this week we're reporting on The Naked Scientist's recent trip to Trieste, Italy's City of Science. We took part in the Science Festival there and we also made the most of the opportunity to speak to the world-class researchers who work in what they claim is one of the highest concentrations of scientists in society anywhere on Earth. I don't have the evidence to support that. If you know better, do please tell us. On the way in the next 30 minutes, breakthroughs in motor neuron disease, I reconnect with radio pioneer Marconi, the woman who's surfing the oceans by underwater drone from her back bedroom, and the team who decode how Big Pharma made their old drugs so they can give the recipe away for free. But first, with such a high concentration of scientists in the city and on a weekend of an Italian general election, perhaps we should not have been surprised to see the people of Trieste expressing their views on some of the other pressing issues of the day. Team member James Titko ended up in a demonstration on his way to the central piazza. I've literally just left my hotel ready for a morning of interviews and and to join the science festival and as you can probably hear it feels like the festival's come to me I don't think this is related to the event that we've actually come to witness but there's quite the commotion here on the streets of Trieste my name is Carlo Stocchi Giada Agustin my name is Francesca Tiziana and what's going on here today why is there so many people why is there so much noise protesting for the climate change Mm -hmm. and Trieste, city of science, or so I've heard, that's why I'm here. Is this, would you say this is a, a good turnout? Or Personally, I expected more people yeah. to come. Me too, yeah. I would have expected more, to be honest. Yeah. Two days' time, we have, you know, the political elections, and it would have been a good occasion, a good chance for us to uh, somehow make our voice heard. Just one or two programs of the political parties somehow mention this problem. And we've had a big problem with flood in one of our region, and a lot of people have died. Two weeks ago, we had so many, so much rain. Like all of Trieste, it was just so much water. You couldn't even cross the street. They, there's international strike in, to defend the climate. They ask us to the to the working people, to the youth, to to make sacrifice because the, there's no enough energy. We have to build a hub in the south. We have to re, to build a nuclear uh, plants and so on while the, the, the industry of the energetic sector in Italy, like Enel, are massive profits and they are asking us to, to cut our uh, consumption. So the point is not that we don't have like, the means to, to overcome these problems. The problem is that these means are, uh, are privatised, basically. I know this is, it's mainly, it's a large contingent of young people yeah. doing the march, yeah. not, not so many old people. This is a good point because... the. Yes, what we saw in Italy, but I think all over the world, like also in, in, in England, I think you, you know <laughs> very well, that the, the youth is the, is the most active and political active layer of society that want to a change and it wants a change, in a, I think, in a, revolutionary, in a revolutionary way. James Titko, 
Up in the hills above Trieste is the International Centre for Genetic Engineering and Biotechnology, that's the ICGEB. They work on a range of topics related to the life sciences, including, in the case of Emanuele Berati, motor neuron disease. So why, I found myself wondering, is there the front end of a very large iron boat plonked in front of the building? We're out in the car park and I couldn't help noticing you have the front end of a boat in the car park. It's huge. What is this doing here? What is this? Exactly, Chris. So basically, it is actually the boat that used to belong to Guglielmo Marconi. As you know, a very famous international scientist in the early 1900s, the one who basically developed the telegraph. He managed to buy this boat. He called it Elettra after his daughter and after the goddess of electricity. And basically, this boat uh, during the Second World War was taken over by the Germans and it was turned into a gunboat uh, in order to participate to the war effort. But that was some time after Marconi had died by the Second World War, presumably. Yes, he had already died because uh, he died quite a, a few years before. So the, the, the boat was requisitioned in 1943, right? And uh, when it was turned into a gunboat, the first thing that happened as soon as it left the harbour for the first time was for a British plane to come along, bomb it and start. <laughs> Feet and then it sunk in very shallow water. And so after they basically managed to recover the boat, they didn't know what to do with it because it was still a famous boat. It had been owned by Guglielmo Marconi for many years. And so they decided to keep it uh, basically in a junkyard uh, in the harbor. And uh, half of it, we never knew what happened. The other half uh, ended up in a museum in Rome. And then there was this front end of the boat that nobody knew what to do with it. And in Trieste, when they decided to develop a synchrotron facility, they said, oh, but the synchrotron facility is actually going to be named Letra, right? The same name as the boat. So why don't we take the front end of the boat and we stick it right next to the synchrotron facility and the scientists there they all went crazy because they said we have electrons spinning around at almost light speed in our synchrotron facility and now you're going to put 2,000 tons of iron next to it this is going to mess up all our experiments and and therefore they had already decided to bring it up the mountain as you said they didn't know where to put it and they ended up placing it here in the area di ricerca where everybody's working working on molecular biology and neurodegeneration that has nothing to do with uh, I have to say, though, I, I went on holiday to the west of England recently and I found myself in a shed at the seaside in the middle of nowhere, National Trust property. And I thought, what is this shed? And it turns out that was the building that Marconi constructed to do the initial ship-to-shore experiments to test the, the concept of transmitting radio signals over water. Probably the ship that it was talking to would have been this one. Yes, he, you, he must have been walking on the deck just above us, <laughs> absolutely. Because this is from where he basically he turned the ship in, one, in his lab. He must have been pretty well off because this is a this would have been a very big vessel. It's, an, it's a huge great iron hull cut in half. You've got a chunk in your car park. I'm a, the, the hole at the front end, the, there's a massive great dent in the front. When I saw that, I thought someone had been careless positioning it here. Is that the damage that our boys did then? Exactly. That's the British bomb <laughs> that sank it. <laughs> 
So you ended up the beneficiary of this historical object in, in a molecular biology institute. doesn't really fit. bit incongruous. Well, I mean, in a way, if you think about the kind of energy that is transmitted in motor neurons, it's all based on the electrons, right? So maybe there is some <laughs> uh, sense out of this. When it comes to motor neuron disease, what are you doing, though? I'm working on a protein called TDP43, and that is the main protein that is aggregating in neurons of patients affected by ALS. And what we're doing in the lab is trying to understand why it aggregates and especially the consequences of its aggregation, trying to understand why these neurons are dying when this protein is aggregating. Can you just describe when a person has motor neuron disease or, or ALS, what is happening and how do they know they've got it? So normally the onset of ALS is very subtle. People uh, realize that they have maybe some problem walking or maybe moving their arms. And what is happening is that your motor neurons are gradually dying. And so you initially start to lose all your voluntary uh, movements, uh, including so walking, uh, moving your arms, moving your head. Then eventually the paralysis spreads to the involuntary muscles so that most people eventually die of uh, respiratory failure. You talk about aggregations going on in, in the affected cells. What's building up? So what is building up, uh, basically, this is a, a protein that normally shuttles from the nucleus to the cytoplasm. And what it does is actually controlling the fate of many hundreds of mRNAs, so their life cycle, uh, how long they stay in the cell, how they're translated, uh, how they're processed in general. These are the messages that are going to tell the cell what to do. Exactly. So what happens is that the cell gradually loses this ability to process the messengers. And once this damage uh, becomes big enough, then of course the cell is going to die. This stuff builds up inside the cell, robs the cell of its ability to handle these messages properly so it dies. Is the goal then to try and work out why that is happening and reverse it or to use it as an intervention? How are you trying to tackle this? For a very long time, it was thought that the best strategy would have been to prevent disaggregation. But now there is some evidence basically considering disaggregation as initially protective. So the cells has an excess of this protein, tries to put it into the aggregate because there it doesn't do any harm. But once the aggregates become very big, then of course they become toxic and the cell dies. So now most strategies mostly aim at making the cell work better. Are you able to do that? I mean, can you see any avenues through which you might be able to intervene meaningfully to either stop these things growing any bigger or stop them having a toxic effect on the cell? Some people are trying to find small molecules to stabilize the cell metabolism. In our case, what we're doing in the lab is to look for modifiers, genes that can allow the cell to cope much better in the presence of these aggregates, and so we're trying to find these genes. Also, there are gene therapy approaches where basically people are trying to get rid of the mutant protein and replace with a normal gene. Of course, one of the problems that very often happens with these sorts of diseases is that by the time you know you've got it, you've lost the vast majority of the cells that you started with and you can't put them back. And so people are saying we'd need to diagnose people early, intervene with preventative treatments early, 
and that should stop it happening. But that means we A, need to be able to test people and have a meaningful test, but B, we also need to put a whole bunch of people on treatment for many, many years potentially, which may not be ideal. Yes, exactly. So the idea is that of identifying biomarkers that will be able to tell when the disease is starting and so uh, start the therapy long before the symptoms uh, can arise. Have you got any? Uh, so there are several under study. We will soon hopefully be starting a project on looking at this protein in blood platelets to see if we can actually see some signs of the disease in people who are still asymptomatic. And by looking at the blood, it's a proxy marker for what's going on in the spinal cord? Yes. So basically what happens is that this protein is present in all cells of our body. And so what we think could be going on is that the same kind of insult that are occurring in the brain cells will be also present in the platelets identified there. That is a much easier uh, source of material. So you'll be able to do a simple blood test to see what is going on in your spinal cord. That sounds very promising. Emanuele Baratti there. You're listening to The Naked Scientists. I'm Chris Smith. Still to come, the project that makes drugs affordable for the third world. But first, we head out to sea, but not in person, because Nancy Apiro from the National Institute of Oceanography and Applied Geophysics told me how marine scientists like her can now productively work from home and yet still be out on the ocean using shark-sized remote control vehicles to explore the depths and report on the effects of climate change. She's studying how ocean currents, driven by the sinking, denser, heavier water and the elevation of more buoyant, lighter water, might be changing. Denser water is more heavy, so stay at the bottom, and less dense water stay at the surface. In order to move the ocean, this water has to mix. So the dense water has to sink and the light water has to rise. So there is a changing of the current and we are trying to understand how this change occurs. Is it not just as simple that in summer more ice melts and puts fresh water in the sea and that's less dense? Is that one of the mechanisms? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is a bad mechanism because look at the Arctic. If you have um, uh, the ice melting, you don't have salty water. You have light water. So you have this light water on the top of the layer and you cannot have the, um, the dense water formation. That's one of the mechanisms that Top the dense water formation. I see. So if you put lots of light, melted, icy water at the top, mm-hmm. it stops that overturning, overturning that sort of mixing, yes. and that could have consequences for ocean currents then? Yes. The, not only for the ocean current, but for us. For example, if you look at the Arctic... If all the ice of the Arctic melts, you don't have this mixing, this overturning. You don't have the current forming. And the current is important for the climate, for uh, our climate. So it means that we will get, for example, cold Europe because the current moved the heat through the globe. This is the Gulf Stream, isn't it? When you get hot water forming in the Gulf of Mexico that comes traditionally past the west of the UK and it's bringing enormous amounts of heat along and and making Europe much warmer than it should otherwise be. If we melt the Arctic, 
and push that back because we stop that circulation, we will actually paradoxically through global warming get colder. Yes, that's correct. So if this occurs, the Gulf Stream will not work anymore. So we will not have this water coming from the Arctic. That Usually the normal pattern is from the Arctic. It goes through the Gulf Stream and, go, and goes to the Antarctic. Then from the Antarctic, it rises to the equator. So in India, for example. And if you don't have this dense water forming, you don't have this circulation. And so, as you can see... It's, it's very bad for us, for all the globe, for the climate. Apart from just moving heat around, are those currents also moving nutrients? So are there knock-on effects in that respect? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Of course, they, they move nutrients. Nutrients usually stay at the bottom of the ocean. And if we don't have this mixing with this dense water formation, nutrients stay at the bottom. And uh, this means that at the surface we don't have food for the fish. Not having food for the fish means we will not eat fish. <laughs> I was going to say, no food for, for the fish the ultimately ends up meaning no food for us, doesn't it? How do you actually study this then? How do you register what these currents and these densities are doing and where they are? We have several instruments. One of those is the glider. It's an autonomous vehicle, like a fish. It's around one metre long for 50 kilo. It's a small shark. And how do you launch it, control it? and then get the data off of it. Yeah, we actually have technicians that go to the sea and deploy for a boat. You just throw away this small shark in the sea and then you pilot from your bedroom. From what? Your, yeah, from your bedroom, from your house. There's a TV advert in the UK where they're trying to push uh, an internet service provider. They show a family landing an aeroplane in their living room and they say we landed a plane on this network because it's got really good data rates and so on are you telling me you're basically working from home then you fly this underwater thing from your bedroom yes 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 we really pilot from home and tell him where to go up and down which sea to go and when it has to come at the surface and when they come at the surface through the satellite they transmit this data i get it so it surfaces talks to a satellite and sends you back what it has learned from all the other instruments aboard when it's been down how deep does it go it depends. Usually one kilometer, but now technology is going fast. And so they are trying to make these instruments uh, going to up to two kilometers. Uh, I mean, if we consider the ocean goes up to five or six kilometers, there is a lot to discover. So um, deeper it goes, more we know. <laughs> I'm still intrigued by the working from home concept behind this. What have you got an app on your phone or something? Or does it work on your desktop? What do you see? How do you control it? So far, we have a website where um, you log in and there are several um, files where you tell this uh, instrument how deep to go, how fast it has to go and when it has to come up to the surface. And um, basically, every time it goes up at the surface, it's really nice because you can change plan. How long can it stay at sea for? Uh, usually four months. It's a long time. It's a long time, yeah. For one instrument, it's a long time. But this is an instrument that costs uh, 250k. <laughs> it's a lot. It's still cheaper than a ship. Well, that was going to be my next point, which is that historically to do this kind of work, someone like you would have had to have been at sea yeah. for months on end. And that would have obviously had a huge carbon footprint, a huge economic impact, and it would have been your time. Now you deploy 
an army of these and you're getting all that data without having to leave your home literally yeah 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 it's it's that's the really nice because also the ship as you said is much more expensive for the environment and for our pocket and what have you learned so far because you, you know we, we started this talking about the, the importance of understanding ocean currents these changes in density and so on is it beginning to bear fruit Actually, this dense water formation is, um, is not increasing. The question is why? Because the water is getting warmer and warmer. And this is one of the side effects of the climate change. Of course, you won't see in one of two years. This has to see as effect in 30 years, so on a climate scale. But so far, it's been uh, three, four years that um, the dense water formation is, uh, is losing power. If we think what will be in 10 years, the scenario is not really nice. Nancy Piro with a sobering story emerging there. Historically, governments have relied heavily on economic principles to guide policymaking and improve society. But are these interventions evidence-based and do they consider all of the knock-on consequences? James Titko caught up with Ludovico Carino, who's Professor of Public Economics at the University of Trieste. So public policies many times intervene in order to push people to do things or force people to do things that they wouldn't do otherwise. No, Because the government thinks... That, uh, that this is good for them. And basically we study what is the impact of these government's interventions uh, beyond what the government wants to do. For example, yesterday at Trieste Next, we discussed a pension reform in the UK that pushed women in the UK to work longer with the increase in the state pension age. The first result of this, the first outcome, the desired outcome of the government was to increase their employment rate. They work more. But we have studied what, how this affects their health of these women around the age of 60. Their mental health actually worsens a lot, depending on the job that they do. If they do heavy jobs, working more years because of the reform could be very detrimental, no? let's say. What started out as a policy to boost economic, to boost GDP, ends up in the long run costing more because of health costs and I, I am prudent to say things on the long run in this case because this happened in 2010 so we need to understand what happens but for some kind of some groups in the population uh, working longer clearly has some now increases the conflicts between family and work time uh, working in heavy jobs might be detrimental no so this kind of outcomes must be must be considered by policymakers when they evaluate their policies. There are also good examples. For example, giving the free bus pass in the UK to old people actually not just induced them to use more the public bus, but also has had a causal effect, positive effect on their mental health and cognition. So we try to broaden, broaden the traditional perspective of policy evaluation going beyond the direct and anticipated uh, outcome, looking at indirect, unanticipated outcomes. I want to go back to something you were saying about building a causal link instead of just a correlational link. Uh, One of the main important areas of research for me right now is long-term care policies. Okay, So social care in the UK, but typically OECD calls it long-term care. We are trying to focus on uh, a crucial research question, which is, okay, we are spending some money on long-term care. Many people want to cut it, for example, and give more formal 
public, okay, public provided formal care. Many people argue families should do it, no? not just the government. Mm-hmm. So we want to measure somehow is long-term care, public long-term care effective? Do people who receive care uh, feel better somehow? Now, if you just uh, interview a lot of people, like you can do with microdata, you can know their health, their mental health, and also whether they use care or not. If you do this comparison, uh, okay, let's look at whether people who receive care have better or worse health than people who do not receive care. Mm -hmm. Well, you will always find that people who receive care are worse off than people who do not receive care. Now, this is the correlation, but can you conclude that they are worse off because they receive care? So this is the causal link. Of course, you can't. I hope it's clear, they receive care because they are worse off. No? They, are, they have worse health, therefore they receive care, and you just observe this. No? And so you need more sophisticated econometrics to actually capture, identify, as we say, the causal link. By the way, we try to do it, we hope we are doing it right, and we find that receiving care is actually beneficial mm-hmm. for health when you look at the causal element. The role of science in, in government, in policy making, has never been as prominent as it has been over the past two years. I'm wondering, I see this growth in science as a, as a tool that policymakers use. We're, we're now used to scientific press briefings on TV and things like that. Has that helped your field of research gain a bit more prominence? The last years with the COVID pandemic surely made people and people in government realize that we need a broader perspective in looking at our choices. No? Think about people that uh, started working from home and then never went back to work because there was something invisible but very valuable for them no? uh, in, in changing their work uh, environment. So, uh, yes, I think that's uh, helping us. We've talked about, we've discussed a couple of examples so far. Is there anything else particularly that that you thought you mentioned that you're excited about working on or that you're, you're looking into? Yesterday, for example, we discussed the impact of urban regeneration policies on mental health with an example from Italy. Uh, the city of Torino has been uh, uh, through uh, important urban regeneration policies in the 2000s, and this had an effect on the prescription for antidepressant, reducing them. So a positive effect. Um, and then another example, which I think is very important, we now have estimated that the causal, as we say, effect of working conditions on mental health of workers. Uh, working conditions, meaning do, can you choose the, 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 the schedule of your work? Do you work during weekends or at nights? How heavy is your job? How much can you apply your skills in your uh, job? And uh, it's very difficult to, to, to check with empirical, sophisticated econometrics whether this affects the mental health. And uh, in a recent research uh, with two Italian colleagues, uh, we looked at the UK and found that women of uh, in the, at the early stage of their career, but also at mature stage of their careers, really uh, react to changes in working conditions much more than, than men. And this is something I really want to work on because this connects with a lot of dimensions of people in their lives. No? In your life you do a lot of things and the, the nature of your job might affect the other aspects of your life, but not only of your life, also of your parents, your children, your grandchildren. So there are intergenerational effects. When you have a problem, it's not just yours. No, It's your partner's problem, your parents, your children, grandchildren. And the opposite, when you, are, when you benefit from something, there are many spillovers, what economists call externalities. Ludovico Carino.
When drug companies make medicines, they initially protect them with a 20-year patent. Once that expires, anyone can make and sell the agent legitimately, but only if they know how to make it. And there's no obligation on anyone to reveal that. So the problem is that many modern drugs, while highly effective, are based on things like antibodies. So they're very complicated to make, and that puts them often beyond the reach of the poorest countries. So what Natasha Skokor's lab does is to work out how these drugs can be made from first principles. And then she teaches people from the poorest countries how to make them. She showed me around. We are sitting in the lab where we produce biological drug. Biological drug is a drug produced in living organisms like bacteria, yeast or mammalian cells. We are talking about insulins, antibodies, different growth factors. Most of the time when we're talking about drugs, though, we're talking about pharmaceutical companies, big pharma. You're a research laboratory. So how do you fit into the equation then? So we are research lab who is working on the technologies to produce biological drugs, the same drugs that pharma companies produce today. So we are basically mimicking all the process in our lab to find this technology and to develop this technology in our own hands. But why are you taking on Big Pharma? Because presumably they've got deeper pockets and better international networks for manufacturing and distribution and sales, etc. So where do you come in? Biological drug is very expensive. So yes, this big pharma can produce it, but they also protect it for 20 years. So we wait that the patent expire and then everyone are free to produce it. We are trying to mimic all the process to produce as similar as possible to that biological drugs. In essence, then, you're reinventing the pharmaceutical wheel. They've done the hard graft of working out what works and they've tested it and proved it's safe. It's then got an expired patent, but what people can't do, even though they know what the stuff is, is make it, because that's the hard bit, and that's where you come in. Exactly. The hard bit is actual process, is a knowledge, so we need a really deep knowledge into the process, and no pharma company will open their books and, and show you. So this is where we come, and we put all our knowledge, and then make the process from the beginning to the end in the lab. Today we are now in the new facility, in the new lab, that is a a lab where we are trying to develop the process for the production of antibodies, monoclonal antibodies, because we all heard now the antibodies against the breast cancer, for example. They made a revolution in the treatment of cancer patients. What's the most important, we transfer this knowledge to the local producers in uh, least and middle-income countries. So that means that they can come here, we can teach them a good manufacturing uh, standards. So they can be trained here, like between four or six weeks they spend in our lab, and we can teach them how to produce it. So in the process of working out how to make really otherwise hard-to-make and expensive-to-make agents, you've also got a sort of training pathway So you bring the people in, as well as giving people the knowledge in other countries, you're also giving them the pairs of hands type knowledge as well. So people go away armed with the skills, as well as the piece of paper that says that's how you make that insulin or that breast cancer drug. There is a need in the world to have this biomanufacturing training hub. We train more than 100 people from 22 different countries and now they're able to produce and to bring the product to the local market. 
that was one of the things that emerged during the COVID pandemic, wasn't it? Lack of on-the-ground manufacturing facilities and skilled people in lower-income countries. So when you've trained these people, is there, critically, an infrastructure for them to go back to? Is there adequate on-the-ground facilities and provision of equipment, materials, etc., so that those highly trained people taking away the recipes you're cooking up here can actually put this into practice in their own country? So we help them to do that. So we help them and teach them how to build this facility. But, you know, even if you build a huge and nice facility, even if the government invests money into the building, there are actual lack of trained uh, professionals. So we really need to have a critical mass of people in these countries to be able to receive technology and reproduce the process. Natasha Skokol, she's at the ICGEB. And that is where we must leave it for this week. Next time, fracking is going under the microscope. The UK government urged that we need to put up with a few earthquakes in the name of energy security, but environmentalists, on the other hand, are very alarmed. So what's the bottom line? If you'd like to share your opinion, do drop us a line to chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thank you for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.